I remember when we were first starting the company, and maybe five years into the company, we were hit. We were hitting our numbers, and we brought in a bro- we brought in a broker from Cushman and Wakefield, and broke and he opened up our New Haven office. And I'll never forget Fred turning around to me after looking at our numbers and saying, "You know what? You don't aim high enough. You're doing great, but you don't aim aim high enough." And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" He says, "Well, you know, studies have shown that Mark, if you think you're going to make you know X amount, put X times 0.5." And traditionally, people are going to hit that. And I'll never start doing that. And we elevated ourselves almost immediately because our expectations were what we thought were beyond reach, but were really very much in reach. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you for joining me again today for an episode of The Fort. Really pumped to have Mark Duclos with me today. Mark is the co-founder and president at Century Commercial, which is based up in Hartford, Connecticut. He's also the president of SIOR, which is the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors, which he's been a member of for 17 years, and they're a global organization. So we have a lot to talk about around there. Century is a leader uh, in the Hartford and Western Massachusetts area, focus on brokerage, property management, and construction management, but has a national footprint uh, doing deals in industrial, office, and multifamily. So enjoy. Mark, welcome uh, to the show today. Thanks for being on with me. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Can we just start off with kind of the two-minute cliff note version of your story and, and what brought you to today? Oh, boy. Sure. So uh, I've been in this business for roughly 34 years now. I got in it bit, essentially because I was originally a banker. I lost a job in banking with Citibank, and I wanted to get into commercial lending. That didn't happen. So I, by uh, mistake, got into commercial real estate. And that was back in 1991, and we are. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. That was back in 1986. We started our company in 1991, and the uh, we've evolved from a a local company that did brokerage into a, pro, a company that does brokerage and property management and construction management. And actually, we set up a separate, actually residential arm just uh, just before the coronavirus uh, crisis hit. So I'm a I'm a Hartford kid and. Born and raised, and that's essentially where we do our business, which is in Connecticut and Western Massachusetts. That, that's about where all of our clients are are based, and we do their real estate for them all over the place. So you didn't you didn't become a banker, and then did you get it? Was your first foray into real estate uh, on the brokerage side? Yeah, so it was actually on the development side. So I worked for a local developer who happened to be the largest land private landowner in the state of Connecticut. And that's where I got my uh, that's where I got my start. Uh, the reason why I got into brokerage was I was doing sales and leasing for them, and it was then mostly leasing. And it became clear that I really didn't uh, want to just represent one property. I kind of wanted to look at the the region. It was tough to get people just to come to one property. Yep, you're the president and co-owner of co-founder of of Century Commercial. Is that what you started in 1991? 
Yeah, so my partner and I, my partner passed, uh, unfortunately, seven or eight years ago, and uh, Peter Gutterman, and a mentor for a number of years, we decided to go into business together, and that was in 91, and that was primarily absolutely brokerage. We were actually known as a brokerage company really up to just the last uh, three or four years. Okay. What kind of gave you the the nudge to uh, break off from the development company and start your business? It was, well, so I went from representing uh, this, uh, working for uh, this uh, developer, what's called now Griffin Industrial Realty. I went from them and I went to work for a local brokerage company, a company called Farley Company, which is now CB Richard Ellis. And I said, that's where I started with them. I think it was in 1987 or 1988. I also worked for a company called Hart Corporation, which is now uh, was uh, folded into Newmark Knight Frank. And uh, then kind of have an idea of the way I wanted to do business. And the general platform and the way brokerage was done back in the late 80s, early 90s was pretty much set in stone. So if you really wanted to do it a different way, you pretty much had to do it on your own. And that was the impetus. I tried to do things within the culture of the existing company, great company, but it was a strong culture, wasn't able to do it. So so you know what? Let's step out and do it. Do it yourself. What did you want to do differently back in 91? So I'd seen the the evolution of the computer, frankly, and that sounds really <laughs> stupid. <laughs> like really, <laughs> Einstein. Yeah, it wasn't really the evolution. I'm, so we started the company, and we had uh, we had these. Uh, I had an Apple uh, computer, and it was one of those big original block Apple computers, right? And and so I'm so I've got that. And as we grow, another one's got an Apple computer on their desk, and another one's got the one on their desk. And oh, by the way. Um, they started getting networked, right? And you start looking at that. You used to go, well, you know, if all this information is being networked, and, I, and I've got information on my desktop, and they got information on their desktop, and then their desktop, why don't we just share the information? Because at some point, the information is really what's going to drive your company. But we were in an environment, uh, the brokerage world, and still the brokerage world, to a great extent, although lesser extent, is is a very individual business, right? That's changed certainly over the years. But my idea was, listen, if I've got information over here, why don't we share the information, collaborate, and use that to our advantage and leverage it? And so that was the core difference uh, of our culture and continues to be the core difference in our culture. Total collaboration, collaboration of people, collaboration of information, collaboration of data. Yep. I love it. Yeah, I've, that's always kind of been the, I don't know if it's a stigma around brokerage. Is it seems like there's there's some companies where even though you work at the same company, like you said, you're kind of an individualist. And then like what you said, uh, the collaboration component is a huge differentiator. I know a lot of great companies, but the brokers kind of work in silos. And I often wonder how that could be. It's it's really difficult, right? It's difficult. And, and when we when I tried to make that change within the company I was at, they were willing to do it, but it really became clear to your point, the culture of the company was so strong that they, they've continued to operate in silos. It's tough to break that mode. To the credit of a lot, they are starting to break that mode. They are starting to collaborate more uh, than they used to. Y'all focus on industrial office. And then, as you mentioned, recently got into multifamily right before the coronavirus. Uh, what other what markets do you operate in? Is it all in Connecticut or are you in other states? Well, we are with our clients are based typically not all, but typically they're in southern New England. 
And so when I say Southern New England, you're talking about Western Massachusetts, maybe somewhat up into a little bit into central Massachusetts, but all the way through Connecticut, not for the most part, not including Fairfield County. So while our clients are, are there, we will represent their real estate needs just about anywhere. Right. And we use the SIOR network substantially to do that. And we can get into that as we go. But so our clients are based in our region for the, for the most part, but our uh, services are not just Southern New England based. They're based all over the country. Right. I love it. I think you might remember when we first met on the phone, I lived in West Hartford for one year. I went to uh, King Phillips was the middle school. I went to I think King Philip or King Phillips. So I have a little spot yeah. in my heart for Connecticut. I forgot all about that. Yeah. yeah so King Phillips is King Phillips, where I'm standing right now in my home office, is uh, probably uh, two miles on a crow's fly. Wow. For me. Go, yeah. go King Phillips. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> great. I went to sixth grade cool. there. Never forget it. It's a, it's a great, great school. Yep. So what is going on in the Western Massachusetts, Connecticut markets right now? Maybe if you could just do a little highlight on how those markets are doing and then maybe as it relates to the the asset classes that y'all advise on and broker in and uh, provide construction management and property management services to. Yeah. Listen, so I get around a little bit and I would say when I say get around a little bit, I'm on a lot of uh, Zoom calls uh, throughout the world. Um, I'm on a lot of these kind of uh, calls and uh, talking to people that, you know, you're Fort Worth and learning more about Fort Worth as we were talking about get a good view a couple of weeks ago in the San Antonio. I was down in Dallas last week. And the reason why I preface it that way, I think what we're doing here in Connecticut and Western Mass is very much reflective of what's going on throughout the c- country, obviously on a much smaller scale. So, you know, when you look at a Dallas market and what's going on industrially in Dallas, or if you look at what's going on office wise in Dallas, we're not at the scale they are from a raw square footage standpoint, but from a relative standpoint, we're seeing some good things. Now, the industrial world has certainly seen a lot more good things than the office world. Uh, right now, the industrial world here, when you look at I look at it from two different perspectives. I look at what I call the e-commerce and logistics perspective, and then I look at the rest, right? Then I look at the, the manufacturing and the, what I'll call more the local market, and then on the e-commerce side, uh, we are in the logistics side. New England is still a very heavily populated, but densely populated area. And uh, in spite of what everybody here is, everybody flocking out of the state of Connecticut, but somewhat true, but not everybody. And so e-commerce companies and logistics logistics firms have big needs to be here because they're serving a good-sized population. And we're seeing the Amazons and the Home Depots and the Targets and the Lowe's and all increasing their footprint here. On the industrial side, as it relates to the manufacturing or the local market, certainly when I talk about local market, I mean local industries, uh, we're being negatively affected by the uh, commercial aerospace world. Commercial aerospace is a strong industry in our area, as is hospitality, events planning, and things like that. So the big one here would be aerospace, and aerospace is a big question mark right now. The military aerospace firms are doing fine. The commercial aerospace firms are not, and they're looking out 18 you know, months to two years before they are. So those those markets you would think right now are challenged, what I'll call, again, the local market, but they're actually right now doing okay. A little bit concerned about what that looks like in another uh, quarter or two quarters, but we'll see. You know, in the office world, uh, in the office world, overall, the office is very quiet. 
Uh, no real big lease transactions being done. Uh, a lot of smaller and medium-sized transactions being done. Vacancy rates have held up reasonably well, although when you go to Fairfield County, Fairfield County had a negative 600,000 square foot absorption number in the second quarter of this year. So that's not a good thing, right? It's going to be very tough to backfill those. So again, the smaller to medium-sized market's doing okay. Certainly shorter-term leases, lease renewals are shorter-term. There is more sublease space on the market. Uh, when you go into Fairfield County, yes, they had the 600,000 square foot negative absor- absorption in the second quarter. But conversely, excuse me, conversely, we're starting to see some companies starting to come out of New York City. Greenwich has been a benefactor of that, Stanford to a lesser extent. And certainly from a residential standpoint, there's been a sizable exodus out of New York into Connecticut. So I think those multifamily and single family homes uh, markets are doing reasonably well there. Overall, the residential world and the Connecticut Western Mass market is actually doing pretty well. That's awesome. You had mentioned that you, you know people might be reading that people are flocking out of Connecticut. Are they staying in New England, or are they moving across the country, or uh, do you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So I think it's all over. Number one, generally, it's down to the southeast, but that's generally. We do have plenty of people that go out to the Arizona uh, region, and I'm not an expert on exactly what that migration is. But that's not a COVID crisis event. That's something that's been happening over the years. We happen to be in a high-tax region. And uh, when you talk about the tri-state area, Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, you're hitting on some of the three highest-tax states in the country. And, um, and people are starting to feel, you know what, maybe it's time to go elsewhere. I'm not one of them, but yeah. And so tense, again, to, to the lower costs and warmer regions. And as it relates to office, I kind of fall in the camp that the office is going to be more important than it's ever been. I think people are starved for being around people and energy, and that's where people are mentored, and that's where culture is built. It's really hard to build a culture through Zoom. It's really hard to mentor you know, people that are graduating college or just coming up over Zoom. Do you have an opinion on you know, once we kind of get past the virus, is the office going to come back strong? Is there any permanent changes that you're seeing? Or like, if I had to say, where where will office be in 12 months? Where do you kind of fall in that camp? Very mixed. And uh, that's, I'm not trying to cop out about it. So I'll give you a reason why. Number one, you really don't want to get your opinion on what the office market is going to be from an office broker, right? Because you're probably, you know, it's got a little bias to it. Yeah. <laughs> but I say that with a, a smile, somewhat of a spark on my face. But um, I happen to be an industrial broker. But the, I think you're right. I think on one side, listen, everybody's really learning what culture means and everybody understands what, yeah, it's nice to work out of your home, full time, be, be able to work out of your home. I don't think people want to work out of their home all the time. Uh, I think companies do understand what culture really means now, and I think they understand that their culture will be challenged. I think that, uh, you know, if you look at I think there was a, uh, a Google sur- Google surveyed their employees. I think the results just came out yesterday. And the one thing that struck me in their survey for the employees about coming back to work or not, only 10% of their employees said they want to work at home full time. So 90%. I'm sure a good percentage of those were I'd like to work at home and I'd like to work at work. I mean, they work at the uh, traditional work. But I would say this, too. I think that the office market that's going to be here next year, whatever it is, right? We all thought everybody was getting back into the offices in September and then moved to January, now moved to June. Who knows when that's going to be? But what that looks like to me is probably very similar to what it should have looked like before the COVID crisis, meaning 
the hybrid that we're talking about, sometime work at home, sometime work at the office, I think that should have been in place before anyway. Uh, right? I think, right? Well, I know I've worked since 1991 when we started the company. The rule of thumb was anything that you needed to do that you could do in the office, you needed to be able to do out of the office. So technologically, we've always been set up to be able to work out of the house and at the office. And I really think that that should have been predominantly the model back in you know February and years ago. So I think I do think that the market's probably get challenged a little bit. I did hear that law firms are starting to die, starting to think about lower footprints. But again, I think that's probably something they could have looked at before the crisis. But I do think the only other variable that people are talking about is more room in offices, right? You're not going to be the four per thousand. You're going to be spreading out maybe a little more. I mean, not the six per thousand. You're going to be spreading out a little more. I think you are going to see that. So kind of one end, you know, kind of a 50-50 kind of deal, probably more of a hybrid situation and probably more room in your offices. How that comes out on a square footage standpoint, I don't know. We'll wait and find out. And and maybe one more question on office. I know you're you have n- nationwide reach. I think for especially folks in Texas and probably others, New York City tends to get a lot of the attention and what's going on there. Do you think that and, and you hear about you'd mentioned uh, folks moving from New York to Connecticut? I've got friends that have moved their hedge funds from New York to Florida. Do you think New York City will come back stronger than ever? Or do you think there might be more permanent damage in such a dense environment than people are maybe uh, thinking about? I think it's the latter. Uh, I, I do. I, wor- I don't worry about New York being a vibrant city, but I do think there is permanent damage done because of a number of things. And I don't want to get into the politics by any means, but there are some, some, there's been things that uh, people have had to take a step back. Listen, I think the the virus itself, people have taken a step back and kind of uh, reflected on their values and what their, what they want their life to look like. And fortunately, I think that's also probably matched up with some of their employers who have stepped back and said, well, why are we doing this? And uh, and I think that's where you're seeing the people flock to Connecticut and, and, and New York and I'm sorry, in New Jersey and New York State and saying, listen, I want a little more team lifestyle. I, I think that's I think that part's permanent. On industrial, uh, you had just kind of broken it out into e-commerce and logistics and then the rest. I just want to dial in on e-commerce and logistics for a little bit. I read a. I actually listened to this at a conference a couple of years ago, but it was for every billion dollars increase in sales online, there's about a million point two five square feet need for industrial. Uh, you had said that that's obviously kind of a highlight up there. Uh, are you doing e-commerce deals right now? Are you starting to see a big influx of demand? Uh, we are. Uh, we're we're seeing. We have seen the demand, and so for instance, we just did a 150 acre sale for. Uh, on behalf of Amazon, and they're putting up uh, what they call a million square foot facility. It's actually their 3.8 million square foot model. Oh, wow. And uh, oh, yeah, they, they've got a few different models. And then we also at least 400,000 square feet on behalf of Amazon. And there's been other transactions that have happened in the state of Connecticut just in the last six months with Amazon. And they're not the only player. You know, Home Depot uh, has come out uh, with uh, with a new distribution facility system that was started before COVID. Uh, you're starting to see, you know, you've got your Trader Joe's and you've got all these that could go on and on, right? Your your targets and lows and so on. But uh, yes, we're we're seeing that very much ratcheted up. The other thing that we're seeing is uh, food quality distribution as well as cold cold and freezer storage facilities. A hold 
is uh, which is Stop and Shop is putting up a 500,000 square foot uh, freezer facility, a cooler freezer facility here in the region. Uh, Agrimark Dairy, which is at least about 250, 300,000 square feet in the new facility. So you're seeing it in a lot of different ways. Wow. I had this question yeah. and you and you kind of answered it, but I I said, have you ever done a deal with Amazon? Obviously, they're the the giant in the room, and they're very uh, forward thinking. And you know, Jeff Jeff Bezos always says the work that we're doing this quarter was done two years ago. You're just now hearing about it. Is there anything different about working with Amazon than anybody else? Are they, you know, is there anything unique about working with them, or it's just another oh, real estate deal? There's a there's a loaded. Uh, I could take a while to answer that one. Um, they are yes, they are unique. Now they use a, f- a couple of firms uh, for their service providers, and we, to be clear, work uh, underneath those firms, as do a lot of other services and a lot of other brokers in the markets. But uh, so yes, there they, you do a lot on the uh, search side. Uh, you don't do a lot on the negotiation side. It's basically, when you find this facility, our experience has been thank you, and and then they complete the negotiations and and do the deal. Uh, Their models change. So what you had as a model last year or six months ago might change uh, completely uh, in the middle of your search. So, you know, they're constantly, as you just referenced uh, Bezos, they're constantly changing and they're constantly thinking and reacting to the markets. So what used to be a last mile distribution facility of 50,000 square feet or 40,000 square feet uh, two years ago probably is about 150,000, 200,000 square feet today. Um, sortation centers, DCs. There's, I think, they have three different DC models. So they're unique. They keep you on your toes, uh, and it's and it's fun. I mean, it's fun because you get a little bit of insight in what's going on and uh, in the future. Is that 3.8 million square foot? Is that all under one roof, or is that three million square foot buildings and a couple smaller ones? Or do you know how that's broken out? It's my understanding, and I've not seen one, so to be clear, but uh, there, I believe it's, it's, well, number one, it's all under one roof, but the footprint of that building is closer to about 900,000 square feet. Oh, it's wow. The number, uh, it's really, it's the, so you can see how many mezzanines or floors they have within the structure. Incredible. Cool. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. It really, it, re- it really is uh, wild. An interesting one, too, just as a side note, with I spoke to a uh, SIOR, a good friend, who is a developer and uh, is developing a facility up in Boston. And he said what's interesting there is the while the e-commerce companies are doing very well and they're out leasing space and these guys are developing a million square feet, he said that they, they're actually competing against life science companies up there. So life science companies up in Boston are booming. So again, the local industries are booming and they're actually competing for space with Amazons and the, and the other e-commerce companies. So he said, you know, we've got a few proposals already on our millions of square feet, and a couple of them are life science companies. Wow. As it relates um, to Amazon and to e-commerce and everything else, are you doing, uh, are you involved in anything? A lot of the headlines the last couple months are that, you know, Amazon might be looking at buying Sears or JCPenney and, and some of these uh, defunct malls and converting them into distribution centers. Do you have any hand in that? or uh, you should... I do not. Okay, cool. No, no, yeah, we don't have that. Yeah, there. One thing about Amazon too is they are very much split up into very definitive units. So, well, we might do business on one unit. We know nothing about many of the other units. Got it. That's going to be intriguing, though, to see how that plays out. Uh, it's going to be very intriguing to see what they do with these malls. Yep. Now it is. I mean, I, I know three probably within twenty miles of uh, my office that are probably 30% occupied and definitely need some life in them. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few years. 
All right, you're the president of SIOR, the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors, 3,400 members across the globe. Uh, I think I've read 686 cities and 60 plus countries. What is SIOR and uh, why are you so involved with it? Yeah, so SIOR, as you just said, Society of Industrial and Office Realtors, is a DC based organization, 3,400 members and growing all industrial and office specialists from throughout the world. Uh, we originally started back in World War II, finding facilities for the government, and that uh, grew to what we see today. Its uh, members, again, are specialists in industrial and office uh, real estate. They're, they're experienced, they're productive, and they're very um, uh, high-end ethical brokers who do it the right way. And that's a, that's a big one, using the word ethics is uh, sometimes overused. Uh, but we like to think we've got the most experienced, uh, we've got the best, and we have some really good people uh, as members. And so why is it important? Well, if you take, there's a lot of reasons why it's important, but I think the SIOR at the end of your name says a lot about who you are individually. So while you, you, know, you, don't, you don't have the time maybe to pull out your resume, we would hope when somebody sees on your business card, Mark Duclo, comma, SIOR, they then have at least an understanding of the minimum standard person that they're working with. So that would be my first. The other is, as a local company, we need to do business uh, with the four clients in other markets. And as I just said, when I see the SIOR at the back of somebody's name, when I go into that market looking for a broker to represent my client, my very special client that I want taken care of properly, I'm going to look for an SIOR to handle that business. Um, SIOR doesn't go with your company name. It doesn't go, like we said, with a resume. It goes with a standard, and we look for that standard. And we do a lot of we do a lot of business. I mean, our original, just for for example, our original uh, deal with Amazon was really through the SIOR network. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it's very important for me. It's very important for me from the standpoint of transactional. But it's first and foremost, again, that standard that people tell us, say, you know what. Mark's got to be halfway decent. He's an SIOR. Yeah. Okay. I love yeah. it. What? Uh, how? How do yeah. you become a member? Is it you just apply? Is there is there a certain amount of years you had to have worked in the industry? Like what? What? What gets yeah. you into SIOR? Yeah, it's actually a raffle ticket. We throw them all in and <laughs> pull your name out. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's uh, yeah. So you have to have a minimum of five years in the business. You have to have a a, a standard of, of ethical behavior, and not just an ethical behavior from the standpoint of did you have an ethics violation, but what is your character? So there's an evaluation on your character as an individual and the way you do business. And then uh, the other is that you have an educational standard as well. So you've got the years in the business, you've got the a number of transactions that you've done three out of four years, you have to hit certain levels in your different markets. Every market has a different level depending upon size and uh, such. Uh, you've got the ethical standard and then you've got the educational standard. And if you're a member, do y'all provide, besides a, a network, are y'all providing insight into data and things that members can get as being a part of SIOR? We do, and we're doing a better job at that. I think it was one thing that this whole crisis has created is, is opportunity, and one of the opportunities for us is to be able to exchange information more fluidly, uh, more efficiently, and that's happening. Uh, we, on a local basis, well, actually not even a local or national basis, I'll give you an understanding where SIOR is very much also about relationships. So it's not just uh, becoming an SIOR and that's it. It's developing relationships. And to answer your question, one of the ways I get more information 
whether it's locally within my own state or throughout the throughout the world, is I've got the ability to call a broker and say, you know what, I, I don't even know if I've got a client coming out your way, but guess what? Can you give me some information on what's going on in your market? I want the view from the street and I want the data. No problem. SIR to SIR, it's done. I'm not sure if that's done in other situations. And like I said, our data, we're building much better data for our SIORs and hold to access from a database. And then as far as it pertains to kind of your role as president, what what is your role as president? And I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of time spent. Is there, a, is there a certain term that you're doing? And yeah, we'll start there. You bet. So I'll go uh, start from the last question there. So the term is typically a one-year term as president. That's a little deceiving because as president of SIOR, global president, you start off as being being elected by uh, a a committee, by uh, a a nominating committee to be vice president. And your term as vice president is for one year, and that puts you on the track to become president. So one year as a vice president, one year as a president-elect, one year as a president, and then one year as the immediate past president. So it's a four-year commitment. But the actual term of president is one year. And to complicate the answer to that question is the COVID crisis. And we were all asked to, by the board of directors, to stay around for another year to extend our term. And we've all agreed to do that. So my term actually as president will be for two years, ending October of next year. My role as president is really to work with the CEO and with my board of directors to, to ensure that SIOR is on the right track and doing the things that we're supposed to be doing to, to, be, to become even, an even better organization and to execute what we call the annual operating plan, which is driven by a three-year strategic plan. So we do a three-year strategic plan every three years, obviously, and then we have an annual operating plan that tells us how we're going to operate this year. And my job there is to make sure that the board is in tune and that the board is doing the things we need to make sure that we're executing those plans. Um, I think outwardly, people look at the president as what I call a person that comes out to the chapters and to the conferences and to the regional conferences and all the events and shakes hands and kissing babies, as I put it, shaking hands and kissing babies. So we got a physical presence out in the marketplace. Well, we'll like I was down in Dallas last week at a chapter event, and I was met with chapter leadership for uh, dinner the night before, and then we had the uh, the event in the morning, and I gave uh, you know an address to the chapter telling us how SIOR is doing and, and what we're doing. I love it. Uh, it sounds like a busy job, and I can imagine COVID has made it kind of interesting leading a global organization kind of over Zoom, and, uh, and it sounds like starting to see events happen and people commingling again, but has, has, has this year been... Has, have you learned something as a leader this year that uh, maybe SI, being in that position, SIOR, kind of taught you? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I've learned one lesson. That's a great question. If I had to narrow it down to one, I will say that my job as president of SIOR is so transferable into what I do with my company and what I do personally. Uh We've learned at SIOR that, again, as I said, our reputation has always been very much and is very much a relationship business. We just have great relationships amongst us. And I think everybody felt that that's kind of what we did. And there were physical relationships. So there were relationships where you physically met people at conferences and so on. That's great. The problem is we also neglected, to a certain extent, the virtual presence, the online presence of SIOR. And that has allowed us to go back to our mission. And our mission, we 
were reminded, have been reminded, is our mission is to really connect. It's to connect people with people, people uh, with knowledge, people with markets, and people with opportunities. So it makes sense, right? It's not relationships. It's connecting people. Connecting people to people leads to relationships. That's been great. So we've taken a step back and we really looked at that. That's not a physical event and that's not a virtual event. It's whatever you need to do to connect people with those things. That's what we're doing. So a nice refocus and a great online presence. I would say I've learned those things and I've taken those very much back to our company and executed those things. We met from our mutual friend, Grant Pruitt, and it was over a... It was an article that Juniper Square had written about some of my thoughts on technology and its impact on real estate. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. How uh, maybe at the first question would just be how does your business use technology and and why is it kind of important uh, as we move forward? Yeah. And by the way, I saw Grant last week uh, in Dallas. Uh, He's doing well. It was great to see him. Uh, and Grant uh, probably is uh, one of the members that really exemplifies where we like seeing our SIO organization go and the people go very positive, very forward moving. So uh, shout out to Grant and everything he does. But from a from a technological side, as I said earlier, when we started this company, it was very much based on the concept of technology, but the, using technology to execute our mission, which was to work collaboratively and to, that the ultimate our our, our focus is to work collaboratively for the benefit of our clients. So everything for the benefit of our clients, and we believe that collaborative work benefits our clients. So with that, we use technology to be able to execute that mission. And so we had, uh, you know, CRMs, and I hate when we use CRMs because CRMs is such a light term for actually what a CRM is, right? That's transactional um, management, it's a comparable data, and it's things like that. And so that started off simply with that and, and you know, your email, which I even forget what email was back then. So that started that in 1991, and that's evolved to a tech stack that we use to drive our business. And our tech stack includes a lot of things, not the least of which is build out and rethink and co-star and and um, Microsoft uh, Outlook 365 and those type of tools. We use those tools to going into the going into the crisis. We use those tools coming out of the crisis or as we're in the crisis. We use those tools more than ever, and that's really driven the success of the company. I can tell you that if we didn't have those tools coming in, I'm not sure what we look like today. But we don't look anywhere near what we look like today without those tools. And kind of in our conversation we had a couple of weeks ago, it's hard for me to imagine uh, real estate to set the stage. Real estate's been kind of a slower adopter to technology. And this kind of goes for a lot of industry or pretty much every industry. But it's hard for me to imagine how real estate companies that are not thinking about uh, their technology stack and incorporating into their business, how they're going to keep up as the world keeps moving because it's moving faster and faster, you know, day by day. And uh. It's a, it's a great uh, disconnect, right? I mean, if you're if you're not uh, moving forward, you're moving backwards, right? And that uh, that couldn't be more true today. Uh, to, to your point, right? You have the, the the groups with technology, and, and let me underline: not that you just have technology, but they actually use it, and they use it as efficiently as they as, as possible. Those those are just accelerating through this crisis. Those that aren't using it, aren't using it to the best of ability or aren't using it at all, that's you've got the great divide. It's, and it's becoming greater. Yep. 
you can have the best software on the planet, but if you don't have a team that's bought in and a culture that's willing to accept technology and use it to their advantage, I, I think it's more important to have the team that's willing to do that than the software itself. 100%. 100%. And to give an example, we had tools in our toolbox right going into the crisis, and we were pretty proud of them, and we used them, and we, and we should be proud of them. But then all of a sudden it became, okay, you know what? We got this wrench in the toolbox. Are we really using it to the you know biggest biggest extent? Like, what else can this wrench do? And that's probably a very primitive term. I mean, uh, example, but you know, we got tools in our toolbox. Are we really using them to the extent we can? Well, the answer was we weren't. And so we had, to your point, the culture that went into that toolbox. We looked at what those tools could do and started using them to the fullest extent. And it's been it's been big. It's been a game changer. It has been a game changer. I skipped over this uh, a, a bit ago, but I wanted to just touch on it before we head into the the final questions. But you launched a residential business before COVID. Why did you decide to get into residential? So the residential, so we've actually evolved from that. So we actually have a multifamily group that's now we fold it into Century Commercial. So that's an actual division on Century Commercial. We've learned a few things. One of the reasons why we got into the residential side, so that is a separate company of which I'm a partner in that company, was I. The, one of the big things is I am totally intrigued on how the residential world uses technology to drive their business. And to your point, I think the commercial world, even us, we're behind. And I'm really involved seeing the tools that they use and intrigued, and I would love to take those tools and put them in the commercial side of the business. So that was that was number one. I mean, we've learned a lot of things. I fortunately have a partner in that venture that um, did a lot of work and started Keller Williams in this market and knows what he's doing. And so, and then another partner who came on board and they're doing great stuff. But so the reasons why I got in originally were really the technological side. I love it. All right, we're going to ask some personal questions. Do you have a morning routine or something that you do that gets your day started? Oh, boy. Anybody that knows me knows that's a loaded question. Um, I am a man of routine. And so one of the things going into this crisis, you know, when you get thrown off your routine, we throw Mark off his routine. That's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, I wake up between 3 and 3.30 every morning. What? And uh, I do. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes. 2.30. 2.30. Uh, but uh, most times between 3 and 3.30, I go grab my coffee. I come up to my office where I'm standing right now, and I work a couple of hours in my office, work through till about 6 o'clock. Well, my routine actually starts off with social media. And I start getting into my office and do the work there. And uh, then about uh, 6, 6 uh, thirty, I then kick off and start doing my workout. And my, that usually includes a walk with my wife. And uh, then we have breakfast, and then I continue my day. So, yes, it's a very... I'm very ritualistic and very, very much set in my ways from a routine standpoint. I love that. You've done that your whole life or something you learned to do kind of old, later in life? When we started the company back in 1991, I knew when we did it, uh, we we're going to have to do an awful lot of catch up. And so what happened was that was also right in line with when my children were born. My daughter was born and my son was born right pretty close thereafter. And the only way, and this is all candor, and I probably haven't said this story much publicly, but now that you asked in all candor, my wife and I had a deal, which was, listen, I'm going to go three hard years here. We're probably not going to see each other much, but we're not going to let it affect the kids because I'm going to be around for dinner and all the things they need to do. But guess what? I'm probably working until 11 or 12 and getting up at three in the morning. 
So that's that's how it all started. <laughs> I was gonna. That was my final question. What time do you go to bed if you're waking up at three in the morning? You go. To, you still go to bed at eleven? Well, it's uh, no. So uh, no, it's, it's, it depends. Go to sleep and go to bed are probably two different things. So when I'm on the road, I'm again in late, and that might change a little bit. But if I'm at home, I go to bed at nine thirty. But I probably fall asleep at about eight thirty. <laughs> got it. I thought I got up early. I started getting up around five thirty, but I got a couple more out. You got you got me beat by a couple hours. Yeah, well, it, uh, don't make it a competition. Quite <laughs> candidly, I'm trying to get to your side of the uh, yeah. the clock, not mine. <laughs> what is the best advice that you've ever received? Business, personal, it could be anything. Yeah. You know, that's a tough one. You know, I I can't think of one single. But you know what? Let me let me first preface it, and I don't mean to do this just because. But uh, you know, I grew up in a family where mom and dad had very much set uh, principles and standards, and so I learned the foundation of what I was doing clearly through them. My dad was extremely hard worker. My mom brought up eight kids. And, uh, you know, I'm one of eight children. And oh, so wow. I learned that working hard and being focused and uh, staying positive was a uh, was a very big part of it. Um, I can tell you that uh, I remember I'll give one piece of advice that, that stuck in my mind. I remember when we were first starting the company and maybe five years into the company, we were hit, we were hitting our numbers. And we brought in a bro- we brought in a broker from Cushman and Wakefield and broke and he opened up our New Haven office and I'll never forget Fred turning around to me after looking at our numbers and saying you know what you don't aim high enough you're doing great but you don't aim aim high enough and I said well what do you mean he says well you know studies have shown that Mark if you think you're going to make you know X amount put X times 0.5 and traditionally people are going to hit that and I'll never forget doing that and we elevated ourselves almost immediately because our expectations were what we thought were beyond reach, but were really very much in reach. So I'll attribute that one uh, as one of the big pieces of advice I've, I've received as a, uh, running a company. I love it. Aim high. Yeah. Aim high. Is there a book you've read that's had an impact on you? I would say the one, I'm not a big book reader. I'm a big newspaper periodical reader, but um, a very, very much a big newspaper reader. But the, I would say the one book that always sticks out in my mind was Never Eat Alone. And the art of establishing relationships and pinging and doing those things, I forget when that book came out, but that was one I actually, to this day, use an awful lot of the tips that they gave in that book to this day in my everyday business. I love it. I've read that book. Um, yeah. That's great. Well, I have to ask, what's a newspaper? We're in, we're in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> you still get those? No, I will say I still read. The only paper I read, physical paper, is the Wall Street Journal. Uh, everything else is online through my Feedly account. Did you say Feedly? Feedly, yes. Oh, I've never heard of that's that. A news, that's, a, that's a news aggregator. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Okay, last question. If there was a billboard on a major highway and you owned it and you could put anything on it for the world to know, what would you put on that billboard? True. I would say that right off the top of my head, would either be positive or stay positive. I believe attitudes uh, coach a lot, and um, I think people worry about the result, and they don't worry about the process to get to the result. And I think the result, uh, will, oh, that process will always start off with being positive. And uh, then the process happens after that. But I think if you're not positive, even in today's times, be positive, 
and that then and have a plan and and execute the plan. So I would put it on a billboard on on I ninety one in Hartford, Connecticut. I would either say be positive or stay positive. I love it, especially in today's today's environment. That's you know being positive is a decision. It's something that you choose to do. And uh, I have to say, even since the first time we've met, you have positive. You're always laughing. It radiates. So you're you're living your billboard. Well, thank you. And I think the one thing you just said, it's a choice. Uh, attitude as what do I love? I've got a, there's one on the side of my desk at the uh, real office that says attitude is a choice. Make it a good one. If people want to find Century or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it through social media, website? How, how can people reach you? Uh, you know what? I, I have a ton of email and I hate email. Not, I get that I need, need it. I love phone calls. So I would just pick up a phone and call me at 860-983-5630. Again, 860-983-5630. And I love talking like this. And I love uh, having ideas back and forth and collaborating. And we collaborate not just internally, but with everybody. So I'd love to hear from people. Thank you very much. Mark, thank you so much for taking time uh, with me today. It's going to be a great episode. And uh, I know you're a busy man, so I, I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, that, that, that was this has been a pleasure, my pleasure. So thank you for the opportunity, Chris. Really appreciate it. Hopefully we keep this going and have further conversations. Thanks, Mark. Very good. Have a great weekend. Hey, everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.